Amen. Hopefully we figured out what was popping, so praise God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your love and your faithfulness. You love us. And we just want to bask in that love this morning. You loved us. Never forget, and we can do that. I can do that. And in the process of studying, reading, praying, and doing whatever it is you've got to, you do for your devotion and your walk with God, don't ever forget that whatever God does with you, for you, and even to you, He does out of love. When He corrects us, it's because He loves us. When He challenges us, it's because He loves us. He is love, so everything He does for us, He does out of love. And sometimes we forget that. And we think he becomes a taskmaster. The Hebrews in the Old Testament found themselves in bondage and they served under a taskmaster and taskmasters. And what they did is they gave them assignments and if they didn't do those assignments correctly, then they were beaten, they were punished. And sometimes we can slip into that mode of God, that religious mode of thinking that God is a taskmaster, a tyrant, but he is love. You wouldn't be here today if he didn't love you. You wouldn't be alive in God if he didn't love you. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, therefore it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You're here because he loved you so much he gave himself for you. So we can't ever forget that it's being rooted and grounded in love. By We can only grow when we're rooted and grounded in love. So what we've been looking at by studying this subject of idols, we must look at from that perspective that it is God who loves us. God wants to remove things from our life that keep Him from us because He knows that when we're open to Him and when we're in union with Him, that we are truly blessed then. So we've been looking at this subject of idols. We saw that in 1 John chapter 5, Jesus says that in difficult times, and we certainly are in those times, that, that we are to know Him. The answer is to know Him. And then he ends that section of Scripture, actually that whole letter, by saying, remove idols from your life. And then we went over to Exodus chapter 20, and we saw that God, after he had called the children of Israel to the foot of the mountain, because it says he wanted to come down on that mountain and reveal his, his power to them and his glory to them so that they would reverence him and fear him, not be afraid of him, but reverence him. There's a difference between being, having the fear of the Lord and being afraid of Him. When you're afraid of someone, you want to run away to, from them. When there's a fear of them, that's a reverence, a holy reverence, you want to get closer to them. And so God came down so that they might develop a reverence for Him, for His power and His majesty and His glory, so they would see this God who delivered them from Egypt and recognize him for who he is, and that they would serve the man that God had put in charge, Moses. And so God comes down on this mountain. They see this, tr- this fire and this smoke on the top of the mountain, and instead of drawing near, they run away. And they say, Moses, you go talk to him, and you find out what he has to say. And whatever he says, we'll do. But they didn't. It's interesting. If they'd done it God's way, then they may well have obeyed him. Because the reason he wanted them to see what he was like in his power and glory was so they would reverence him and obey him. But instead they fled away from him and when they fled away from him, they went back trusting in what they could see and what they could feel. And they needed a leader that they could see. And then we went over to Exodus chapter 32. 
And that's where we're going to pick up today. Because we've talked about idols and what idols are and where to put them away and flee from them. We've seen idols, we've looked at idols that had to do with the just physical material things, you know, statues and things like that, and they're obviously idols. We've looked at the idol of, of things, and, and when we worry about whether we're going to have enough things, Jesus taught us that that means those things have become an idol to us, because what that means is we trust we don't trust that God's going to provide for us. We're putting our trust in those things, whether it's your job, your car, your possessions, your clothes, whatever it is. And the proof that that's become an idol to you is when you worry about them. Because to worry about them is to put them ahead of God in your heart. Then we looked at some other things. We looked at Paul and we saw that in, in Philippians, Paul had to set aside the things that he had built into his life, the, that he built his confidence and his reputation his accomplishments, and all of those things. And Paul said, I count them as rubbish in order that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And so we saw Paul had to take, we can have idols in our lives that are, that, that are just, they're, they're our accomplishments, it's our resume, it's our reputation. We all want people to think good of us. But do we want somebody to think good of us ahead of God? And then it's become an idol. We saw that we can make an idol out of something God's given us. We looked at Abraham, and God had given him Isaac and made it very clear that this is the one through whom your destiny is going to be accomplished. I'm giving him to you. You must trust me for him. And as he did trust him for him, and God was able to give him a child when they had no ability to produce a child, then there came a point in time when God said, I want him back. Because I want to know that in spite of this child and how much he means to you, that I'm still first in your life. We saw that that can represent talents that God's given us. It can represent a calling that God's given you. It can represent an ability that God's given to you. That there are times when God's going to say, I want it back. Put it on the altar. I want, I, want to, I want you to only have what I give you. And I shared you my own testimony of how God took me through that exercise and how valuable that's been to me, how much more confidence I have in my walk with Him and how much closer I've come to Him because I had to put down something that He had given me only for Him to turn around and give it back to me again. It's, it's, only, it's allowing God to give it to you, not taking something that you know He's made for you. And that's so important. It's a subtle difference. And we looked at that. And then two weeks ago when we were together, we began to look at, at something else. We went into Exodus chapter 32. And we'll pick up there again. These are the same children of Israel now that came to the foot of that mountain and said, no, this is too scary for us. You go talk to him. And then they went and they went back to their tents. And God called Moses up on the mountain. And he gave him what we call the Ten Commandments. That's in chapter 20. And the very first thing God says to him is, I am the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image of me. And we saw that that's the essence of idolatry. It's when I make something my own God. When I add my own talent, ability, my own ideas to it, now I, it's become an idol to me, even though it may be something God gave to me. And we saw God said, I don't, you can't do that. Even to the point where God says, if you're going to worship on something, you've got to worship either on dirt or on stones. And if you worship on, make an, make a, an altar on a stone, you, it cannot be a stone that you've used a hammer or a chisel to, because the moment you do that, you've added your effort and your idea to that, because before that, it's my, something I made. We can only worship Him on something that God has made or given to us. 
And then we saw that God tells Moses how to build this wonderful place called the tabernacle. It's a dwelling place, and it's a tent and a series of building and a series of courtyards in which God designed a place so that he could come and dwell among his people. And then when they finished this, he came down and he dwelt among them. But in the process, God gave the children of Israel the Egyptians' jewelry and gold and fine linen, and he gave it to them so that they could use it to construct this tabernacle as a place where they could worship God. And so when we pick up this story in Exodus chapter 32, God has given Moses the pattern for this tabernacle, this, this church basically where God is going to come and dwell among them and he's given them the materials to build it but it's not yet constructed. And God calls Moses back up on the mountain. All right, Exodus 32. Now when the people saw that Moses had delayed from coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, come Make us gods that, we, that shall go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And we looked at that and we saw, wait a minute, notice where their eyes are. The people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain. The people gathered together to Aaron. Aaron was the one, Aaron is Moses' brother. He is the one that Moses has left in charge while he's up on the mountain. So the picture is this. Their, their leader is on the mountain in the presence of God getting his wisdom and direction for them. On the top of the mountain, he's absorbed in this cloud, which is the presence of God. Their leader has assigned his brother to represent him in the camp. The people had not yet learned to walk by faith. Instead, they walked by sight because it said, they said, this Moses whom we see, we cannot see anymore. They got antsy. They couldn't see their leader anymore, so they needed a leader they could see. Oh, we could park on that for a while. We don't follow a leader because of their natural ability, because we like them or don't like them. We're to follow them because God has put them in a place in our lives as leadership. In order to follow them, we've got to do it by faith because nobody's perfect. But you're looking for the call of God and the anointing of God on the leader that God has put in charge of you. And so our trust and faith has to be in the God that's chosen that leader. Because often what we do, and Lafayette talked about this last week, often what we'll do is we'll evaluate our leader. And why do we think God... I'm dealing with a situation right now in another church where people in the church are evaluating the leader and I've got a young person and I told them on the phone, what makes you think God appointed you? to correct your leader. You may be entirely right about everything you see, but what makes you think God appointed you? And so they said, this Moses, we, we can't see him anymore, and we've got to see our leader, so we're going to pick somebody we can see. So they picked Aaron, his brother, 
and they made a mistake. And usually when we walk by sight, we make a mistake. All right, let's see what happens. Make for us gods for us, this Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. Now, in Exodus 20, God tells him who brought him out of the land of Egypt. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. God wants them to look at him, worship him, listen to him, obey him, because he and he alone can provide for them, protect them, and get them where he wants to get them. Instead, they've got their eyes on Moses, and they believe Moses is the one that got them out of the land of Egypt. Moses understands he didn't do it. He's the one God used to bring them out, but God was the source of the ability. Moses didn't part the Red Sea. God did. Moses didn't take that bitter water and make it sweet. Moses didn't cause the food to come down out of the sky. Moses didn't cause the water to come out of the rock. God did. He used Moses, but God was their source. And that's the essence of idolatry, is when I make something else my source other than God. And that's what they're about to do. So the first mistake they have is their understanding of who their source was. And if your foundation is wrong, your building will be wrong. So Aaron said to them in verse 2, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. These gold was given to them to build that place where they were, God was going to come down. The true and living God was going to come down and dwell among them. And these materials that God gave them to build that sanctuary for him, they're now going to use for another purpose. That's called profaning them. When you take something God's given you for his purposes and you use them for your purposes, you're profaning them. It's going to get more exciting. Verse 3. So all the people broke off the gold earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned them with an engraving tool and made a molded calf and said, This is your God, O Israel. Look at this. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt. What he's saying here, let's look at what he's not saying. He's not building an image of some demonic god that they worshipped in Egypt. Now there was calves that they worshipped. There were golden calves in Egypt that they worshipped. But he's not calling them by those Egyptian names. He's calling it Elohim. He's saying, this is God. Not, not Baal. The pagans worship Baal. The Israelites worship Jehovah. And they're saying, this God, which we've now made out of this materials he'd given, this is our God. This is Jehovah. So the most subtle, the most dangerous idolatry is to be worshiping the true God, but to make him into an image that you want him to be. And the reason that's so dangerous is because it's so subtle. Because what's coming out of your mouth is Jehovah God. What's coming out of your mouth is I love God, I worship God, I serve God. The right things are coming out of our mouth. But in our heart, we're doing something else. And it can be very subtle. 
So we began to look last time at what one of these was. We went over to, to Mark chapter 6, and we saw Jesus, who'd been raised in his hometown, come back to his hometown once he was, once he was uh, uh, released into public ministry by, the whole, by God, and once he's now anointed by the Holy Spirit, he's been baptized in the Jordan River, he comes back among his people, he's been performing miracles all around, and he comes back into his own town to perform these miracles, and they won't receive him for who he is. Because they said, isn't this little Jesus? I mean, we saw him grow up. Isn't his mother Mary and his father Joseph? Aren't these his sisters that are with us? And these are his brothers. I mean, we remember the kid. Good boy. Never talked back. Never did anything wrong. We saw him. But, but this, we remember him. And that is who he was. He did grow up. But he's now come back to them in the anointing, in the power of God, in the fullness of his ministry, and they, it says, were offended at him. And we talked about the first way we make an idol out of God is through the idolatry of familiarity. We want to bring God into terms that we can relate to the way we can relate to each other. Now, be careful. I don't want to say, because God has come down. He is our Father. Jesus is our elder brother, but He's also the Son of the living God. When, when John last saw Jesus before He was, went to the cross, He was sitting with, reclining with His head on Jesus' chest. When Jesus comes back and appears to Him after He's been raised from the dead, John doesn't come up and buddy up to Him and lay His head on His lap. In fact, the last time John sees Him is on the Isle of Patmos, Jesus comes to him and John falls down like he's a dead man. Why? Jesus, John had to adjust to the increased image of who this Son of God was in order to receive the full benefit of who he is. And the danger here is if you bring Jesus down to who you want him to be, then you also limit what he can do for you. And this says they were offended at him and the next phrase says in Mark's account, and he could do no mighty works among them, except he healed a few, and the, really in the Greek says sickly people, like some headaches. In other words, because they could not receive him, because they tried to make him into the image they wanted him to be, that they remembered him to be, because they would not be allow him to change and expand their image of who he is, they tried to keep him down to the image that they wanted him to be and became offended at him. They limited what he could do in their lives. And then it finishes by saying, and Jesus marveled at their unbelief. He just couldn't fathom it, their unbelief. So that was the sin or the idolatry of being too familiar with God, making him your buddy-buddy. And God does want to be intimate with us. And God does, is your Father. And He does want you to be able to come up close to Him. But don't ever forget who He is. Don't ever forget who He is. The next one. The next form of idolatry. The next way we make God into the image that we want Him to be. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 15.
Start in verse 1. Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, he's not talking about cleanliness, hygiene. He's talking about a ceremonial particular type of washing. And I think it's in Mark, Matthew's account. I know it's in Mark's. It's basically, the, literally in the Greek, it says to wash with the fist. So there was some special way that they would wash these vessels that was required under the law. And Jesus didn't do that. Now, I get the scene here. Who, who is Jesus? I, you do know the answer. This is not a trick question. He's the son of... Oh, that's good. Let's try that again. He's the son of... I knew you knew that. Okay. All right. He's the Son of God. John chapter 1 says that in the beginning was the Word, the full expression of the Father. Verse 14 says, And that Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. In other words, God took on flesh. Colossians says, In Him the fullness of of the deity dwelt in bodily form. So the point is, the one they're talking to is literally God in the flesh. Come to reveal himself. And they don't get it. They've got God standing in front of them and they can't see him. Oh, let us never get to that place. Why can't they see him? He doesn't fit their image of him. That's what we're talking about. They had formed an image of the Messiah. They'd formed an image of God, and this man standing in front of them did not fit that image, so they rejected him in place of the image that they chose to hold on to. You following me? All right. So they're criticizing, <laughs> they're criticizing God because He didn't perform the ceremony correctly. They're criticizing God, because he didn't perform their ceremony correctly. Try it over here. They're criticizing God because he didn't perform their ceremony. Their ceremony. Their ceremony correctly. You didn't wash your hands. Again, not for hygiene purposes. You didn't wash your You didn't go through the ceremonial washing that the law prescribes. Now understand what the law is. The law initially is what God gave Moses on that mountain. But they added to that. The religious leaders added to that somewhere between 600 and 900 other rules. Well, you got to have 600 rules to carry out 10 that God gave you. You know you're out there on your own. His 10 were sufficient.
Why do you, why do you also transgress? Verse 3. And he answered and said to them, this is his answer, this is God's answer to them. Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? So that's the second way we make God into our own image is by our traditions. We all have them. The fact that you sit in the same seat every Sunday is a tradition. We have a tradition in our order of service. We don't come and have a printed bulletin that says we start with a call to worship and all those things the way I did back in the church that I had come out of, but we all understand the order of the service, and if we did something different, that was different. What was wrong with that? Now, some traditions are good. Paul, in some places in the New Testament, says, you know, keep adhere to the traditions that I've given you, but these are traditions that have come from God. They're for the purpose of maintaining discipline, but these were man's traditions. The only people Jesus got mad at were the Pharisees who imposed traditions on the people because those traditions kept them from knowing God. That's why he got mad at them. So Jesus' response is, why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Now look at how, this is an example. For God commanded, this is one of the commandments, honor your father and mother. And he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, this is what you've come up with, this is what you've done with it. Whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift for God. Now, in, 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 um, in Mark's account of this, it says it's called korban, C-O-R-B-A-N. What that referred to is they had a tradition where you could take something that had been given to you from God and you could say, I'm going to keep this aside as a special gift from God. But their motive wasn't like the tithe to honor God with it. Their motive was to keep it separate from having to come under other things that they were required to do. So what was happening here is they were, the, the commandment is to honor your father and mother. That doesn't just mean sending the birthday card and the Christmas card, you know, and whatever cards for whatever holidays. It meant take care of them. And he's saying, what you're doing is you've redefined that commandment because you've come up with another rule, which is that you can designate some of what God's given you as exempt from that obligation because you've set it aside for God. I'm worshiping God with this. Oh, 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 this is, oh, 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 we may meddle here. I feel the spirit of meddle. <laughs> God's commandment was very clear. God's clear. Honor your father and mother. They found a way out, they thought. Because what they would do is say, yes, I know we're honor our father and mother, but I have taken this which I was to give to my father and mother, and I've set this aside as a special gift for God. Aren't I spiritual? It's a lot like what Saul did when God through the prophet said, kill 
the king and all of his animals and all of his soldiers, kill that entire people and wipe them out. Kill all their animals. And the prophet shows up. God already told him the night before what he's going to find. And he said, I think I hear some sheep bleeding. Bah, bah. Oh, Saul said, oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what happened? Actually, Sam, Samuel, here's what we did. I know God said to kill everything, but we've kept them aside as a special offering to God. You know what God said about it? He said it was like divination or witchcraft. He says, because what you're doing is you're, you're offering a sacrifice to me instead of simply obeying me. The famous verse is, it's better to obey than sacrifice. That verse is not saying it's better to obey God than have to pay the sacrifice of disobeying Him. That's not what it's talking about. The sacrifice He's talking about is something I chose to give God instead of obeying Him. What God wants is obedience. His command was clear. Honor your father and mother. So what they've done is they've found a way to justify in their own mind doing what they want to do and make it sound spiritual like they're doing something for God. And Jesus was not pleased with that. We better move on. Verse 6, then he need not honor his father and mother, but thus you have made, listen to this, thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. And Jesus speaks well of them. You hypocrites. That's not a compliment. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, this people draws near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart, see it's an issue of the heart, is far from me, in vain, that's, that's in other words, worthless, do they worship me. You know, true worship is not what makes us feel good. True worship is not what gives us goosebumps. True worship is not what oh, wasn't that wonderful. True worship is when he's pleased. Because worship is for his benefit. Now, you benefit him, you'll get benefited. You can't bless him without being blessed. But the measure of true worship is what he receives. And here, through the prophet Isaiah, he's saying, you worship me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. You're obeying the commandments with your lips, but it's not coming out of your heart. And it's because of your traditions. When he called the multitude in verse 10 to himself, he said, Hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. By the way, I want to go back. In verse 9 there, it's quoting Isaiah 29.13. Isaiah 29.13 in the New American Standard says, Their reverence for me consists of traditions earned, learned, by rote. Listen to that again. This is Isaiah speaking. Their 
their, 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 their reverence for me, lifting their hands, praising God, consists of traditions learned by rote. Do we come here and worship him by rote? You know what rote is? It's, it's as a habit you've learned over and over and over again. You're drilled on it so much you just do it because it's the right time to do it. That's what we do. You worship me by traditions learned by rote so it doesn't come out of my heart. Traditions keep us from knowing him because we develop a relationship with the tradition, not with the true, oh, go, listen to this, the true and the living God. What does that mean? That means he's alive today. He was alive yesterday. He'll be alive tomorrow. You have a living, vital relationship with him. So, so, So as I've shared with you, this July we'll be married 44 years. Our relationship is more vibrant today than it's ever been. But that's because we've had to work at it and not just assume I know where she is and she knows where I am. That's when something becomes rote. We take each other for granted. That's a tradition. There are some spoken traditions and some unspoken traditions. I know the way she likes her coffee fixed. I know the way she'll put the spoons on the table. All of those things are traditions. But there are other traditions, there are ways, there are thought patterns that she has. There's thought patterns that I have. If I don't listen to her and know who she is today and just assume because she starts a sentence I know how she's going to finish it, that's like a tradition. I'm taking her for, I'm assuming I know where she is because of prior behavior. When we do that, then the life of the relationship begins to fade away. There's no life. There's no vibrancy. It's no, no, there's no newness to it today. But she's a living being today. She's not in the same place she was yesterday. She's growing. She's changing. She may be in a little different mood today. Or, and sometimes that's really a learning experience, gentlemen. <laughs> it's to understand our women, the wives don't think like we do. I remember, I'll never forget the shock. And I don't, I'm embarrassed to tell you how long you've been married before God got this through to me. I was complaining about God, she doesn't think the way I think. Will you please straighten her out? I'm, I'm, I'm being honest with you. God let me go on for that a while and finally said, as only he can, I didn't make her to think like you did. I mean, that was a bombshell to me. I didn't hear this on some tape. God spoke this to me. I didn't make her to, I needed to hear it directly from him. I didn't make her to think like you, and she never will, so stop trying. So the next question is, well, why didn't you? (laughs) The thought in the back of my mind is you made some mistake there, but obviously God doesn't make mistakes, so I've got to decide whether he's right or I'm right. Well, I settled that issue a long time ago. I may not understand, but he's always right. And that's what began to open my mind to understand some of these things. Well, the same thing comes over to our relationship with Him. He's the living God. He's alive today. Your walk with Him today is an adventure with Him. There's a great little book written in the 1600s by um, Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. 
there's some things at the end of that book which doctrinally are just aren't quite on. But the basic beginning of it where he talks about his living relationship with God, he talked to God over the spoon on the floor that he was jo- his job was to pick up. I mean, he had a living, lively relationship with God. Traditions rob you of that. Traditions assume certain things and say, you can't do this. Many of you have come out of churches where there were traditions, rules. You can't do this. You can't. Notice whether rules are more things you can't do than things you can do because you're appealing to the flesh of man. And the Bible says it's if by the Spirit we're putting to death the works of the body, not by rules. Traditions. Traditions rob us from knowing God. Well, let's go on and look at another one. By the way, in Matthew 11, 28 and 29, famous verses, Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden. He's not just talking about your physical body there. He's talking about weary because you've been carrying around all kinds of obligations that burden you and, and, lay, and, and press you down. In Matthew 23, Jesus talks about uh, a tradition again. He says, he says, you talking to the Pharisees, you tithe mint. You tithe the herbs that you get, tithe off of them. So, so they, get a, uh, they get a sprig of mint, they would take a tenth of it off. And they would tie that. But he talked, he called them whitewashed sepulchers. He called them a brood of vipers. He wasn't complimenting what they were doing. So you, you have all these traditions that make you feel good about yourself. See, what a tradition is, a tradition is a substitute for a relationship with God. Again, they're good traditions, but we're talking about religious traditions that man has imposed to tell you how to relate to God. We better look at the next one. Oh, this is a good one. (laughs) Another idol that you can make, another way you can make God into your own image that you want Him to be is by your experiences. Here's what I mean by that. The Bible tells you one thing about God and you have another experience. And you choose to believe what your experience tells you, not what the Word of God tells you. There are bookstores filled with books saying all kinds of things about God that aren't based on His Word. They're based on people's experiences. That they have interpreted what that means about God. Something that they've gone through. Let me just mention several of them. There are people, many people out there that teach you that miracles are not for today, that they passed away with the last disciple. You cannot find a scripture that tells you that. You can read scriptures and you don't see miracles, but there's no scripture that says God reserved them just for the apostolic age. There isn't a scripture that says that. So what man has done is they look around, they don't see miracles, so they assume that they've passed away. Then what happens is now you have to start interpreting the Scriptures to support your doctrine. 
instead of drawing your doctrine from what the Scriptures say. I'm going to say that again because it's so important. It is very important as believers that we learn to think clearly. You understand that as a believer you can still use your mind? Romans 12.2 does not say be transformed by the removing of your mind. But that's what many charismatics believe. Now that I'm saved, now that I'm filled with the Spirit, oh, it's whatever the Spirit says to do. And they do the craziest things which don't make any sense. Well, if it's God, it doesn't make sense. No, that's not true. God is a God of order. God is a God of discipline. It's a good thing the stars aren't hung in the sky that way. It's a good thing they're not led by how they feel today. God is very orderly, very disciplined, very purposeful. In fact, in addressing the issue of the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he ends by saying, God, do things decently in order. God is not the author of confusion. So there are people, they'll fight you over the gifts of the Spirit, whether they're still for today. But you can't find a scripture that says they passed away. Oh, it says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, because it says that, you know, when I was a child, I put away, I had childish things. When I became an adult, I put away. You've got to read it carefully. Because what he's talking about there is not when the Bible comes, it's when Jesus comes. The danger is we have a pet doctrine that we want to hold on to even when the scriptures show us something else about God. Miracles have passed away. That's the problem because I've had miracles happen to me. Well, God doesn't heal today. There's a problem with that. There are many people right here that God's healed. So if God doesn't do it, then, then somebody else must be doing it. And there are people that will tell you that in order to substantiate and hold on to their tradition. If I'm stepping on some toes this morning, I'm sorry. My responsibility is to preach the Word. So you cannot take your experience, Sister Doodad's experience that you read in a wonderful book that brought tears to your eyes because this thing happened in this person's life and God turned it around and used it. Said, yeah, God will use anything. That doesn't mean He caused it. God will use anything that happens to you, but His preference is to use the Word. The Bible does not teach us that God brings sickness in your life to teach you something. Because if they did, Jesus would have done it. He was God in the flesh. If you want to know, Jesus said, if you want to know the Father, look at me, He said. Show me somebody He made sick. Show me somebody. He said, this sickness I give to you so that you'll learn something. But somebody in a situation couldn't explain why this happened to them. So it's very comforting to say, God did it. And wait, now that we developed that, now we have to address scriptures that point the other way and excuse them somehow. And now I'm making God into who I need Him to be, not who the Word of God reveals Him to be. That's an idol even though it's about God. When you take your experiences 
I was reading a book the other day about somebody that taught, taught um, and I talked about this on a Wednesday night a couple of weeks ago. I'm not going to get into this this morning. But talked about a particular doctrine that he believes that, is uns- that to me is un- clearly unscriptural. And the basis for it was an experience he had once he became a believer. And suddenly he could see things differently. But it contradicts all kinds of scriptures. But it was real to him. And he wrote a book that we read and say, well, that must be what God's like. That's why you've got to know your Bible. That's why you've got to know. These other books are fine and they're good. That's why we have a bookstore. But it's not a substitute for knowing your Bible. God did not ordain Christian books to reveal to us who he is. He will use them, but he ordained one book. And that's the book that's in your lap. Because every other book is man's understanding of that book. And I hate to shatter your image, but man has been known to be wrong on occasion. Now, I better be very careful about this. I've actually been wrong once. (laughs) Maybe twice. We've all been wrong in our judgment about things. But that book is never wrong. And the primary purpose of that book is to reveal to you who God is. So don't base your understanding of God on what somebody else says about Him. Take what they say and go back to this book. And if it doesn't line up with this book, then either throw it out, put it on a shelf. If you don't understand it, just put it on the shelf, literally. But don't choose to believe what somebody tells you, even me, over that book. Over that book. Traditions. My experiences. Don't decide whether God's will to heal by whether you're healed. Don't decide whether God will heal somebody because you know people that have died from that condition. That's their experience. That's not what God's Word says. Find an example where Jesus refused to heal somebody. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, I only do what I see my Father doing. That means Jesus didn't exercise an independent judgment about things. He came to reveal the Father. He was the Word of God in flesh. He was God in the fullness in human flesh. Our traditions our image of what we want God to be, our pet doctrines, our pet belief systems. We hear people say all kinds of things about God in order to make them feel better about something that they're going through. But is it what the Word of God says about Him? Because every time you say those or you hear those, you're forming an image in your mind and your heart of what God's like. It's so important in these days that we live in to know who God really is and what God's really like. Oh, this is a good one. The last one we're going to (laughs) cover. 
that we make to form God into our own image is our excuses. Ooh. It's a good thing we don't have much time left. Well, I know I've done this over and over again, but after all, God knows I'm only human. You ever heard that one before? I'm making God into whom I want him to be so that I don't feel guilty about my sin. God wouldn't mind if I do that. What's his word say about that? God understands my weaknesses. God is love, and he is love. But because he loves you, he won't leave you alone where you are. Our excuses. We'll actually use God as an excuse for doing something we want to do. But to do that we got to change who he is in our mind and in our mouth. And that's a dangerous thing to do because then when you get into a difficult situation and you want to run to that God, what God are you running to? Are you running to the God you made? Because the one you're spending your time thinking about is who you're going to run to. Are you going to run to a God who's your buddy-buddy? Are you going to run to a God who is a tradition? Are you going to run to a God who is an excuse? Or are you going to run to the true and the living God who you've gotten to know because you're willing to lay these things aside? Now understand, as I shared with you several weeks ago, this is a process. The Spirit of God, I believe, is working in our hearts if we'll let Him to shine the light on things in our life that we've related to as God that's not God that we've made into God. Things that we've begun to put our trust in of the God who delivered us and set us free. He didn't deliver us out of Egypt. He delivered us out of the world. I am the Lord God who delivered you from sin and from the world and transferred you into the kingdom of my beloved Son. You shall have no other gods before me.